0: Last week, we talked about how work fits into the order of creation. And so we explored that the creation narrative kicks off with a God who works for the sheer joy of it. He bestows work upon humanity, not as a curse, but as a gift to enter into the joy that he experiences when he's working. And so he gives us work, not for his benefit, not so that we could be little minions to do what he wants, but he gives us work for our benefit. And so work was meant to be this thing in our lives that's Brings joy that fulfills us in such a deep and meaningful way. In fact, according to the Bible, we need work to live fully thriving human lives. And so we ask so then what happened? Because for most of us, we've become so disconnected from God's original design for work. Work is not a source of life, work is life draining. Work is not fulfilling. It's the cause of burnout and mental health issues. Few of us work for the sheer joy of it. Instead, we daydream of never having to work again. And so why is there this disconnect, this utopia that we were supposed to work in harmony with God and with creation? Why are we cut off from that original design? Well, the good news is I'm going to try to answer that for us today because I don't want to leave you in a state of hopelessness. Although I talked to many people after service last week, and they said, I genuinely love my job. And that made me really happy to hear. I am genuinely look forward to being at work. But I would say for the most of us, work is just this, um, it's a means, Right? It's a means, it's a necessary evil for us to make money, to go on the vacations, to fund our sneakers, all these things. And so today I want to propose to you that all of these things are true, our disconnection from God's original design and intent for work, not because we hate work, but precisely the opposite. It's because we worship work. And what's happened in our day, especially here in America, here in the Western church, is that instead of offering up our work to God as worship, we've actually made work the object of our worship. We've made it the most important thing in our lives. Work has very much become our American idol. We worship God. Work. And some of you are saying, okay, Pastor Mickey, I don't worship work. That's extreme. I don't bow down to work or sing songs to work or tithe to work and sing, How Great is Our Job. I don't sing that, Pastor Mickey. That's extreme. I don't worship work. Well, what is worship? Worship is simply the act of ascribing worth to something. What if I put it this way? Maybe you say, I don't worship work, but for many of us, If we're to be really brutally honest with ourselves, work is the most important thing in our lives. It is our greatest priority. It determines where we live and for how long. Come on, how many of y'all in San Francisco because of work and how many about to leave because of work, right? Our entire schedules revolve around it. We spend more time thinking about work than anything else throughout the week. In fact, some of us can't stop thinking about work even when we're not working. We're at home. We're thinking about work. We're thinking about our deadlines. We're thinking about Gloria. I'm so, oh, I'm so sorry. I, she's just visiting. She's out of time. I'm sorry. I just ruined the flow. Holy Spirit is cut off. Sorry. Let me, let me, get, let me get focused again. We derive our self-worth, our identity, and even our security from work. Come on, if you've recently lost your job or gone through the process of of transitioning out of your work, you know how much trust and security you have placed in your job. I'm sorry to say it, but for many of us, work has become our God. In fact, we've even normalized a term for it. We call it workaholic. Workaholic right? Some basic statistics, because I know y'all love the numbers. Um, Workaholism, which is kind of defined as anyone working above the average or set hours, work hours for your company. Workaholism affects an estimated 30% of the general population. One third of y'all here work too much. And the primary country that has a problem with workaholism is the U.S., American workers, they say, put in nearly 500 more working hours every year than their French counterparts. Wee oui, wee, oui. That's like an additional 12 weeks of work, 12 extra weeks of work, not because we have to, but because we're so addicted to overworking. In fact, 34% of American adults don't take their vacation days. You know, I was surprised when people working in tech told me they get unlimited vacation hours, and I asked them, how much of that do you actually take? They said, not really that much, right? Because there's this culture where we're expected to show up and work and work and work. And even when people do take vacation days, 30% of people say they, that on their vacation, they worry constantly about work while they're trying to relax. Come on, have you ever gone on vacation and you just cannot escape your work, your Egypt. Come on. They say one out of four people will not leave their desk for lunch or take breaks during the day. And the effects of workaholism speak for themselves. The divorce rate in relationships where at least one person identifies as a workaholic is 55%. They say 3% of workaholics feel physically ill when they're not at work, mimicking withdrawal symptoms that are associated with addictive drugs. Come on, if, you, if that's you, you're part of a 3%, y'all. You need, you need Jesus, okay? They say people who work, work 11 hours a day or more and this doesn't just include being in the office. This includes even when you're out of work and you're thinking about work or you're working last night, late night emails and stuff like that. People who work 11 hours a day or more have a 67% greater chance of suffering for, from coronary heart disease when compared to those who work a typical eight-hour day. And if you're an extra overachiever, anyone working 12 hours or more a day is 37% more vulnerable to suffering an injury that is job-related even in an office environment. Listen, forget construction workers getting into a fatal accident. These days, our office chairs are literally killing us. And how did your company respond? They didn't reduce your hours. They got you standing desks, right? They don't care about your health. There's a bottom line. And here in America, we are literally overworking ourselves to death. And it's because, not just because of the way the system's set up, not just because of our employers, it's because we have made work the object of our worship. We've made work the most important thing in our lives. And so, I ask you again, the question I want to ask you today is this, have you made work an idol in your life? Has work become your God? Has work become the most important thing, more important than family, more important than community, more important than God? Has work ceased being worship? unto God, and become idolatry in your heart. Hard questions to ask, but let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray we wouldn't walk away feeling condemned, um, but we would walk away feeling convicted. And Holy Spirit, you give us the grace to say, work has become an idol, it's become the most important thing, but I want to reprioritize my life and make you the most important thing. So would you come... Give us grace to do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to look at Romans 1, 21 through 25. Uh, Paul's writing to the Roman church, and this is what he says. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And this is the key part right here. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worship and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. I think when we think of idols, we think of images like the golden calf or or um, small little totems that people bow to, or Buddha statues, or Kelly Clarkson. But here, Paul makes it very clear that idolatry is simply worshiping created things rather than the Creator. It's elevating something that God created higher than God himself. My man, I mean, we've been drawing a lot of wisdom from TK, my man, Tim Keller. And TK says this, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. And so the things that become idols in our lives are not inherently bad. Some of them are actually good. Some of them were actually gifts God gave us to enjoy. But they cease becoming gifts when they overtake God's place in our hearts. When we prioritize the gift over the gift giver, they become idols when they become more important to us than God himself. And so... You know, TK, we're drawing a lot of wisdom from him. He gives us four characteristics of an idol. The first is this, anything we make more important to God. Is there anything that you prioritize in your life more than God? Very practically, you know what you prioritize by looking very practically at where you spend your time, your energy, and your resources. Man, I remember a time a few years ago when I I started pastoring, I was in ministry, and I was, you know, someone asked me, like, oh, like, how's, how's your life going? How's your spiritual walk? I said, it's good. I got over everything, right? God is first in my life. But then that night as I was in prayer, I, I actually, God led me. He said, look at your calendar right now. And I looked at it, and all of my time was devoted to ministry. And I had one little chunk at the end of my day, my leftovers, where I actually just spent time with God. So guess what, Mickey? I know you think you're a pastor, you're holy, you're in a, you holy, know, you're in a realm where you could do no wrong, but you've actually idolized ministry more than me. Because where you spend your time, your energy, and your resources, yo, print me out your bank statement. Don't really do this. Show me your calendar. Show me, tell me where you spend the most energy in your life. That's what you worship. And I think for most of us, it's safe to say we've placed something other than God in that place, So the first thing is anything we make more important to God. Second, anything that occupies our hearts and our minds more than God. What fills your thought life throughout the week? What drives your emotions? Um, I haven't talked about this in a while, but let me tell you how I knew I was in love with my wife. All right? Before we started dating, do you know how I knew that I, I was madly in love with Krista? She was always on my mind. In fact, I would just go throughout the day, and not only was she always on my mind, but when I thought about her, all of a sudden there's this rush of emotions to my heart. And everything just looks so. Have you ever been in love? Everything just looks so much brighter. It's like the birds were singing a song. You're in love. Everything was so beautiful. She was constantly on my mind, in my heart. She became a priority because I knew she occupied my heart and my mind. What fills your thought life throughout the week? What is constantly on your mind? What drives your emotions? That's the most important thing to to you. The third thing, anything we seek to give us what only God can give us. What gives you meaning, value, significance, and security? Is there anything that you derive your sense of value or significance from other than God? Is there anything you rely on for security more than him? Um, back when I used to rap, you know, I always tell stories not of me rapping well and killing a show. I, I share stories about how I failed on stage and embarrassed myself, but there was one in particular that I still cringe to this day thinking about. They invited me to an abolition summit where we talked about eradicating human sex trafficking from the world, and I wrote this song called Not For Sale. And you know, there are two ty- types of rap, right? There's the type where you bop to, and you're not really listening to what they say, mumble rap, but there's the type where it's like conscious rap, backpack rap, where you listen to the lyrics. Well, I was the second category, and so my lyrics were very important. I was at an abolition summit of abolitionists that wanted to see the end of human sex trafficking for children all across the world, and I had this song where every word mattered, but I was so nervous, and I remember when I got on stage, I went through the first line, and then I forgot the rest, and so I just started freestyling, and I tell you what, you want to know what's on your heart, get up in front of people and just start freestyling. (laughs) I didn't know what the hell I was saying. And so I'm supposed to inspire people to say, man, God cares about the children. He wants to stop this exploitation. He wants to rescue them. But all I'm saying is this nonsense crap, just trying to rhyme words like, you know, church and hurt and worth and deserve. and It's not making any sense. And I remember by the end of it, people didn't know. Like, usually when you, you know, even if you try, people clap at the end. Literally everyone was like, hmm. I walked off stage so embarrassed. I remember I got home that night, and I remember the feeling wasn't just, okay, I messed up. I remember feeling worthless. I remember feeling my sense of value, of meaning, of significance was radically shifted. And I thought, man, I've actually been looking in my career, in my, in my passion, I've been looking for something in that that only God can give me. And so the third thing, anything that we seek to give us, what only God can give us. And the last thing, anything so central and essential to life that if we lose it, our lives would feel hardly worth living. If you were to lose this thing, would you lose a sense of your will to live? Would your life completely fall apart at it seems. Would you feel an inner emptiness or loss? You know the best way to know what's got a hold of your heart? Ask yourself, how would I feel if I gave this up? Oh, I can give up alcohol. I just don't want to. Oh, I can give up junk food anytime, right, Vanessa? But I just don't feel like it right now. But I could do it. I could do it. Trust me, coach. This is why fasting during Lent is so fascinating and so eye-opening because we realize what's had a hold on our hearts all along oh my gosh, why is Korean drama so hard to give up? Why can I not put Squid Games down and just focus on something else? Why is negative thinking so hard to detach from? Because we, when we lose it, we sense a feeling of inner loss. I, I promise I'm not an alcoholic, but there was a season where I was really into beer when I was starting out ministry, And my my fridge was packed with different kinds of beer from Trader Joe's, from Whole Foods. Whole Foods has so many different kinds of beers. And I had them all. And one of my uh, roommates was a youth pastor, a youth minister. And so he'd bring over his youth kids all the time. And so these youth kids would like, oh, can I get something to drink? They opened the fridge. they see see all these beers. Like, uh, okay. (laughs) And they wouldn't know what to do with that. And so I remember my pastor sat me down. And she said, "Uh, Mickey, I know you don't have a problem with alcohol, But can you just, you know, just for me, you know, because you love me, can you just give it up for six months? And immediately I felt this like, no, like in my heart. I didn't say that to her, but in my heart I felt this resistance. And I realized something in that moment. Man, okay, I might not be addicted to alcohol, but there is something about this thing where my heart is attached to it. Where if I lose it, I lose a sense of something. It has a grip over my heart more than I think it does. And so these are the four signs of idolatry, how you know something is an idol in your heart, anything um, that we make more important than God, anything that occupies our hearts and our minds more than God, anything we seek to give us what only God can give us, and anything so central and essential to life that if we lose it, our lives would feel hardly worth living. And so through this framework of idolatry, I want to insert work. I want to ask you again, is work an idol in your life? Does it identify with any of these four characteristics? Let's go through it. Do you prioritize work over God with your time, your energy, your resources? Does God get the leftovers of a long work day, or do you begin each day with God and say, God, you are first? Does work get in the way of spending time with family, building community, attending church, Spending time with your friends, do you think work is the most important thing in your life? The second thing, do you think about work throughout the week more than God? Are you constantly plagued with deadlines and details from work even when you're off? Does work particularly affect your mood? Maybe with your partner or your spouse or someone that you are close with, your roommate or your family? Are you constantly on edge because of work? Your emotions are vastly affected. You know, there used to be this Facebook game called Blockles. It's kind of like Tetris that you would play on Facebook Messenger. And I remember I played it so much that every time I closed my eyes to sleep, I would see these little blocks in my mind. You know, Gabby probably sees it when she plays Tetris 99, and she closes her eyes, and all she can see are the blocks. For some of us, when we close our eyes and lay our head to rest at night, all we think about is work. We think about all the things we got to get done the next day, all the things we didn't get done today. Does work constantly take up your mind and your heart? The third thing, do you seek meaning, significance, value, or security from work instead of God? Does your title give you a sense of significance? Do your accolades give you a sense of superiority over others? Is your job your main source of security in life? Everyone I talk to that had been let go in the past few years or had gone through the transition of work, went through this crisis that I had so much security wrapped up in my career. But is, is God your main source of security and trust and stability? And the last, if you were to lose your job, would your life completely fall apart? Would you feel aimless and purposeless? Would you question your identity? Would you feel empty inside? These are all important questions to ask when bringing our work before God. And so maybe some of you are saying, okay, I ticked maybe one of those boxes, maybe all four. And you're saying, shoot, okay, work has become an idol in a sense in my life. But what's at stake here? I want to look at some of the prophets. Habakkuk 2.18 says, Oh, what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Zephaniah one eighteen. says, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. See, the thing about idols is this. They could never quite do what we want them to do for us. This is why the prophets say he makes idols that cannot speak. They create these idols, but they cannot speak back. This is why the prophet says, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them. We make work an idol because we think it will give us significance, the security, the fulfillment that we've always been longing for. If I work hard enough, I'll finally be content. I'll finally be happy. I'll finally be seen. I'll finally find purpose and meaning in my life. But we have to understand the gods of old were bloodthirsty. The idols set up by humanity required many sacrifices. People sacrificed their livestock, the food off their table, and in some cases, some people sacrificed their children to these gods. We expect idols to give us what only God can give, only to realize that idols only know how to take. We think God gave us the command to not worship any idols because he's an intention-hungry narcissist. No, our worship of idols does nothing to him. It doesn't affect him. It affects us. When we place our trust and give our worship to idols, we miss out on the beauty and the joy of God's gifts for us. There's so much more at stake than God's ego. And so maybe you're still not convinced, okay, I have not made work an idol in my life. I'm not trying to force you to believe that. But here are some signs that we've made work an idol, and these are the things that work has taken from us when we've placed it before God. There's two things I want to highlight, and then we'll go for a landing. The first is exhaustion. When we make work an idol, we are constantly exhausted. Weariness isn't necessarily a result of busyness, but of disordered priorities. That Tweet that, Okay. I didn't make that up. That's, uh, I think that was Dallas Willard. Weariness isn't necessarily a result of busyness, but of disordered priorities. When we worship work, when we make it the most important thing in our lives, we burn out. We are constantly tired and weary. We live exhausted. Have you heard it said, what you worship, you become? And so when we worship God, when we lay our eyes on him, just like Jacob's saying today, we become more like him. But when we worship work, what do we become? We become just like the companies we work for, machines. Our companies are like well-oiled machines, only concerned with performance and results, It's no wonder we become like machines because we worship work so much. But you're not a machine. You were not made to go, 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 perform, produce, repeat. But this is who our world conditions us to be. Some of us give so much to work. We have nothing left to give to anything or anyone else. God, our families, our communities get our leftovers. Uh, One of my heroes in faith, Dallas Willard, He used to do this retreat for uh, young pastors and ministers. And, you know, on this retreat, when you sit with a sage or someone who's wise in their faith, you think, okay, we're going to wake up early for early morning prayer, right? We're going to have morning session, afternoon session, night session, deliverance time, all these things. But what was notable, Dallas Willard, he would grab these groups of pastors and ministers, and the first thing he would say to them is, tomorrow morning... Wake up whenever you want. Sleep in if you want to. Wake up at 9. Wake up at 10. You don't have to wake up early, and then we'll just get started. And for some of these pastors, they got restless hearing that because we had been so conditioned by our country, by our culture, that we have to work, 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 produce, produce, produce. One of my other friends, he does this retreat for, uh, for young adults as well, millennials. It's called Young Guns. And basically this retreat, you guys would love it because – it's basically a church retreat with no church program. You basically show up. You're not allowed to talk about anything ministry-related. You're not allowed to talk about God even unless you really want to. There are no prompts. And throughout the day, you just do whatever you want. Go hiking. Play pool with each other. And then we'll have one small worship session at night. And people were, he was telling me, man, when people come to this retreat, are, their lives are changed. Because they're so used to packing their schedule with God moments, with these things. But when they just allow themselves to be and to rest, they escape this culture of exhaustion. And all of a sudden, they actually can enter into the rest that Jesus promises us. So how do you know you've made work an idol? Are you living exhausted? Man, some of you have not had a break for years. Some of you have not really rested since you graduated are you living exhausted? That might be an indication that you've made work and idle. And the second thing is this fear and anxiety. When we make work and idle, we live in constant fear and anxiety. Afraid that we don't have enough, afraid that we are not enough. Anxious about the future, never feeling secure or safe in our position, always feeling like we're in lack, always looking over our shoulder to see if anyone's going to take our spot, feeling pressure to protect the empires that we've built. Fear and anxiety, and what it ultimately ends up doing is it just drives us to overwork. In Egypt, You know, we know the story about Pharaoh overworking the Israelites, enslaving them, and, you know, causing them to do manual labor beyond their means. Do you know what drove him to work his entire nation so hard? It was fear. His fear of the coming plague, his fear of the coming famine, caused him to say, we got to work extra hard. The anxiety that there wouldn't be enough when the famine would come, Fear and anxiety drove Pharaoh to overwork himself and everyone around him. And in the same way, fear and anxiety will cause you to overwork yourself and overwork everyone around you, your team, your roommates. You ever been around someone that's just so go, 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 that you you just feel so restless and uncomfortable around them? Like you feel like, oh man, what am I doing with my life? They're doing so much, overachieving. In the same way, when we live with anxiety and fear, it causes us to overwork. You know, I guarantee you that manager or that supervisor that is overworking your team, I guarantee you the root of it is anxiety. I guarantee you that. You know, one of my favorite books about leadership is this book called *The Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. Have Anyone read it? Of course not. It's okay. Listen, A Tale of Three Kings, I, I, I really challenge you to read it. It's a great book. But in the book, the author compares the reign of three generations of kings, Saul, and then it's David, and then David's son, Absalom. And so he highlights how different King David was, how different his ruling was from both Saul and Absalom. See, Saul and Absalom carried the burden of building their own empire. Saul regularly disobeyed the voice of God through the prophets and followed his own agenda to secure his own kingship. You know, generations later, Absalom, this is David's son. He started a rebellion against his father and basically forced the kingdom from his father's hand. They took the kingdom, the empires, they took it for themselves. They built it for themselves. And because they shouldered the burden of building their own empires, they also shouldered the burden of keeping them. Saul lived his whole kingship in fear and anxiety because it was up to him to protect it. He built it so he was responsible to keep it. That's why even though David, you know, in Saul's reign, was one of his most loyal soldiers, David, he can never see David as an asset. He always saw David as a threat. That's why Saul would chuck spears at him and try to kill him because he had to guard his position. He had to guard his power and his authority. Same with Absalom. But it says King David was different. He never wanted the throne. In fact, he knew that if God made him king, it would be up to him to establish the kingdom. And because David knew everything that he had was from God, he never felt the burden to protect it. In fact, even when Absalom, his own son, came knocking and saying, we're going to take the kingdom, you know what David did? He did not fight back. He gave it up, said, here, take it. And he said, it's up to God who he wants to be king. That's how much he trusted in the Lord. Imagine the difference, what peace King David lived with versus what fear and anxiety Saul and Absalom ruled with. What is the difference? Some of us are living with the fear of Saul. Some of us are carrying the anxiety of Absalom. You're shouldering a burden you were never meant to carry, and it's quite simply because we don't trust God to do it for us. We don't trust him to keep us safe and secure. We don't trust him to lead us to success. We don't trust him to give us enough. How do you know you've made work an idol? Are you living in constant fear and anxiety in your life? And so we see that a lot is at stake. We cannot live the kind of lives that God promises us when work rivals God in our hearts. I'm going to do one last quote from TK. Work is a great thing when it is a servant instead of a lord. Work is a beautiful gift from God. Work brings deeper meaning and purpose to our lives. Work allows us to thrive, but it must play its proper role, subservient to God. It has to be in the proper order. Imagine a spectrum, and on one end is worship, and on the other end is idolatry. Where on the spectrum between worship and idolatry is work for you? Maybe for some of you, it's right in the middle. Maybe for some of you, it's leaning more towards idolatry. Maybe for some of you, it's, worship, but how do we move from work, move work from idolatry into worship? And so this is where I promise this is the final landing, okay? I'm not trying to be too Pentecostal here. I I really mean it when I say we're ending soon, okay? The answer to our exhaustion, the answer to our lives full of fear and anxiety, the thing that moves work from idolatry to worship is Sabbath. Sabbath. Remember when we said God created a rhythm to creation? Six days of work and one day of rest? It's more than just a cool kid's story. It's actually the order our lives were meant to flow into. It's more than just a mini vacation, that one day of rest. It's more than just a day to catch up for sleep. It's quite literally the thing that recenters, reorients our entire lives to say, God, you are the most important thing. Sabbath is an act of resistance against the nonstop exhaustion of Pharaoh. Sabbath is the quiet voice of peace in response to the fear and anxiety of Saul and Absalom. And In our search for significance and value in our work, Sabbath returns us to this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter whom I love, whom I'm already pleased with. In our worry about the future, Sabbath reminds us, if he dresses the lilies, how much more will he clothe you? Sabbath, in our weariness from our labor, Sabbath says, come to me, all who are weary and tired, and I will give you rest. And some of you are saying, Pastor Mickey, why do you always talk about Sabbath? This is the third time you've preached about it this year. You always mention it in your sermons, and it's because I know y'all aren't doing it. So I'm going to keep preaching it until we do it. To set a day aside, to cease work, a day to enter into true rest, free from wanting, free from wanting more, free from working, free from production and overworking. A day to say, I am enough, God is enough, and I can be at peace. A day to help us reposition work as worship unto God. So I'll give you your action plan for the week. And it's the same action plan I've been giving since 2019. Set a day aside in your week. You know, the the sages and the prophets, they used to call this thing holy intent, living with holy intent. It's it's not just living life as it comes to you, but it's being intentional about every moment. What if you could be living in holy intent, setting a day aside in your week to say, I'm going to set a day aside to stop from wanting, to stop from working and say, God, I want to reorient my heart to you. I know some of you don't have the luxury of a full day. Do a half day. Just set aside a moment to rest, to not think about deadlines or work, to not think about anxiety or fear of the future or or things that you got to get done, to, to stop being exhausted and say, God, you are the most important thing to me. Um, I'll end with this quote from John Mark Comer, and then we'll go into response. Uh, Worship team, you could come up right now. This is what John Mark Comer says. That's why Sabbath is an expression of faith. Faith that there is a creator, and he's good. We are his creation. This is his world. We live under his roof, drink his water, eat his food, breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. We take a day off from toil. We give him all of our fear and anxiety and stress and worry. We let go. We stop ruling and subduing and we just be. We remember our place in the universe so that we never forget there is a God and I'm not him. There is a God and I'm not him. Why don't we close our eyes right now? Today, I want to invite you to lay down your idols. And the way that we do that is we simply respond to the one that invites us in. The one that says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We come to the only one who gives us what we've been longing for, the thing that we've been needing. We come before the one that says, you don't have to work anymore. We come to the one that says, I am God. I don't know if this message hits you. I don't know if you view your work as an idol, and if not, that's okay. That's great. But if that is you, and you feel even a small sense that I've made work more important in my life than it should be, Right now, in an act of surrender, I want you to begin declaring in your heart, you don't have to do this out loud. Say, God, I lay down my idols before you. Would you become the thing of most importance in my life once again? Right now, would you give him your exhaustion? Would you give him your fear, your anxiety, your stress, and your worry? Would you give him your control? Would you give him your need to continue ruling and subduing and producing and say, there is a God and I'm not him? Just take a moment to do that. I sense for some of you, there's a deep rest that's coming right now over you. And I'm not talking about just, you know, you're not sleepy anymore, but inside your soul, there's a deep rest coming over you. I sense some of you, you've been living with the pressure and the burden of Saul and Absalom in your career, in your life. Everything has been on your shoulders it's been up to you to protect it and to keep it and grow it. But I feel God lifting the yoke off of you and giving, him, giving you your, his yoke, saying, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. Gardener God, would you grow rhythms of rest in our lives? As a response today, um, with your eyes closed, we're going to do this in a second. We're going to respond with communion. I think communion is such a meaningful, beautiful practice that actually recenters us in this truth. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 17 before we get into it. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. I love that the response. After saying flee from your idols, free from idolatry, he says the way that you do that is you come back to the body. You come back to the blood. Today, I want to invite you to lay down your idol. And as you take communion, may it be a prophetic, symbolic expression of you laying down your idols and taking the body and the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, this is my body that was broken so you don't have to break yours overworking and striving and exhaustion. He says, this is my blood that was spilled as a sign of my perfect love for you, a love that drives out all fear and anxiety. And so as we take the body, we lay down our exhaustion. As we take the blood, we drive out the fear and anxiety, and we say, God, you are the one thing.